Amen. What a fun morning watching kids up here sing, not sing, fight, all the above. You got the whole, it's all fun. I love it. I love it. Absolutely love it. Um, uh, before we jump in uh, our, our new series we're going to uh, get into, I do want to tell you just to continue to be praying for. I mentioned a little about a month ago that uh, the elders over the past uh, really two months we've been praying about, asking God to lead us, like where do you see us, the vision for the church for North Point? Where is God leading us? And I can say with some confidence now that God has definitely led us. We have kind of formulated a vision that we feel like God is leading us in, and we're looking forward to sharing that with the church real soon. Uh, we, we desire to sit with the staff and the deacons and pray and talk to them and discuss it with them. And hopefully in February, March, sometime in, in that time, we're hoping to do a whole series kind of talk about where do we feel like God is leaving, leading North Point. And so I just ask you to continue to pray for that. And if this is God's will, God's going to bring us all together on it. If not, God's going to redirect our hearts, and we want to be uh, patient in that. So just be praying for that in your own hearts. Continue. If you have, continue that. If you haven't, please start that. If you don't know what I'm talking about, just smile and nod at me, whatever. Just uh, make me feel better about myself up here right now. Just kidding. Uh, we're starting a new series called Stepdad, and you can open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. And, and I know some of you are trying to figure out what this is about, because uh, I've had people come and ask me what in the world's going on with this. What, what is this all about? It's a series to kind of get a different perspective on uh, the Christmas story, the nativity. Uh, we always seem to talk about Mary from her perspective, or, or Jesus, or the wise men, or even from God, but yet there, there's a character that's actually barely even mentioned in Scripture that is kind of a pivotal character, and it's Joseph. And it's through his perspective, what would it have been like for him? And as I sat down a year ago and kind of prepared my sermon calendar for this year, what I want to talk about, and what, what God was leading in, I began just to think about well, what would that dynamic have been like for him? And the reason it resonates for me, I'm going to be honest, is, you know, I grew up in a blended family. Uh, from the age I was about two years old, my, my mom married, who is now my stepdad. If you would not know it, because every time I tell stories of dad, that, that's who I'm talking about. It's a man that raised me, who was part of my life. He was a huge part of my life. And I'm eternally grateful for him. And, but I know at the same time, in that, in that relationship, there's a whole different interesting dynamic that goes into that. Uh, it, it's, it's different. I know for me as a, as a stepkid growing up, there's a different dynamic to that. And we never referred, he never referred to me as Eric, his stepkid, or he's Brian, my stepdad. He was just dad, and I was just his son. But at the same time, there was something about the fact that biologically I was not his kid. And yet he loved me as his own. And, and, and the challenges and joys and the frustrations and everything that goes into that. And I began to think about Joseph. Joseph's in a similar situation. I mean, Jesus is not his son. How does he interpret this world? How does he, how does he do what he does? This is a calling un, unlike any others. And so uh, over this next series, we want to explore what, what was it like for Joseph and what's his perspective on this whole nativity story? And even more so, what is God teaching us through Joseph? And it's something I'm hoping that will be good for you. Now, I, I just want to caveat real quick. Listen, this is not a, a sermon series to glorify stepdads or degrade them in any way, shape, or form. I think it is a biblical calling for fathers to lead your family, for mothers to lead your family. I think it's a biblical calling we have. If you have kids and you've given birth to them, you have a calling to that. I also think there's something redemptive in Scripture about people taking kids, whether it be through adoption, through fostering, through uh, just marrying into and being step-parents, whatever it is, taking this kid and making it your own. I think in Galatians chapter 4, it says this, and talking about God and his children, it says, When the time came completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Listen, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we, being me and you, might receive adoption as sons and daughters. 
And because you are sons, listen to this, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, a child of sin, but a son. And if a son, then God has made you an heir. You see, in many ways, we, we are all adopted into the family of God, and God takes us in this role. And so I want to look at it from a different perspective. And so it's funny, the people that have talked to me, and, and it, it shouldn't surprise me, but it did intrigue me. The people who came and asked me what it was about are the people who are step-parents and said, what, why, why are you saying this? Because it kind of gets a little offended because we don't, they don't see themselves as step-parents, right? This is your kid, and I get it. Yeah, but I do want to understand different perspectives. So I want to make that caveat clear. If you want to talk to me later about it, I'd be more than happy to share anything about it. But uh, it, it is a different perspective. Uh, for me in my life, in case you're wondering, like I said, uh, uh, from two years on, uh, my, my, my stepdad and my dad is one who raised me. Uh, I had an interesting family growing up. I, I had seven brothers and sisters, all step in half. I, I jokingly say in my life I have been the only child. I have been the oldest child. I've been the youngest child, and I am the middle child. I've been all of it. And so I can relate to anybody in this room on any level you want to because I've been it all. I've experienced it all in a whole different way. Um, and so what was it like for Joseph and for Jesus and for this whole story? And I hope uh, it teaches you something, makes you look at God and ourselves in a whole new light. And today as we unpack and we just kind of an introductory sermon on Joseph the carpenter, who he is, what, what this is about, who is this guy that Scripture honestly doesn't say a lot about. Uh, the big idea that I'm hoping you get from this message today is this, and if you don't walk away with anything, walk away with this, is that ultimately we're going to see through Joseph is that God entrusts the ordinary with the extraordinary. God, God takes ordinary people and gives them extraordinary responsibilities. God takes his most valuable things he has in this world and gives it to people who seem like should not be worthy of the task at hand. And Joseph shows us today as we unpack. And so if you open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1, it is kind of where we're going to glean from. We're going to kind of uh, pot shot all over scripture to look at it because I'll be honest, Joseph is not really mentioned much. As a matter of fact, Matthew talks about the lineage. If you're looking at Matthew chapter 1, you see the lineage from Abraham all the way down to Jesus, and this goes through uh, Joseph's family tree. Uh, Matthew, in case you are wondering, Matthew is the pers- written from the nativity story, is written from the perspective of Joseph. Ma- Matthew wrote his gospel to a primarily Jewish audience, and in a primarily Jewish audience, he's trying to show them that this Jesus is the new and greater Moses, and that he can do greater things, and he fulfills, uh, he mirrors and fulfills a lot of what you see in the Old Testament, and being a male-populated, a male-dominated faith at that time, he, he's going through the perspective of Joseph in this. Luke actually goes to the perspective of Mary. And so when you read those two different narratives, when you see it, you understand they're coming from different angles. And so we see the lineage all the way going down. It says in verse 16, it says, And Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who is also called the Christ. And later unpacks. From Matthew's perspective, in this, we see that Joseph is the one who has the angelic encounters. Not Mary in this situation. The angels come to Joseph and talk to him and tell him, and we'll unpack more of that later on in other series. In Matthew's gospel, it's Joseph's obedience that saves Jesus and Mary. It's Joseph who chooses not to reject Mary, which honestly, if you understand about anything about Jewish custom and law, she should have been stoned to death for what had been going on. And we'll unpack that, I think, next week, if I remember right. He saves her, ultimately. It's Joseph who takes Mary and Jesus and flees to Egypt and ultimately saves their life as the king's looking to come and kill these babies. It's Joseph who does it. And you need to understand it. 
It's Joseph, I think, is interesting in Matthew, who ultimately names Jesus, Jesus. You see at the very end, it says in verse 25, it says, and he named him, Joseph, Jesus. Now, now God directed him to do this, but Joseph has the naming rights, and it's Joseph that does this. It's interesting to understand a lot about Joseph. And so the question comes in, <coughs> my throat gets dry, so I'm probably going to cough, so just roll with me there. The question comes in then is, <coughs> who is this Joseph guy? Because we really want to introduce Joseph. Let's first look at Matthew chapter 1, we look through. The first thing we see is we see this whole lineage, which I'd read through, but for time's sake, I'm not going to. You, you see this lineage going from Abraham to Isaac, going all the way down to David, who is king of Israel, who was the first, uh, sorry, after Saul, established king appointed by God. And it goes all the way down to Jesus. You see, you've got to understand something about Joseph. Joseph is a distant, distant relative of King David. This is an important aspect. See, God tells his people, he tells Abraham, listen, I'm going to bless you and make a father of many nations. Many kids are going to come from you. And even that, there's going to be a king that's going to come from you. And, and from the line of David, there will be another king that will reign. And the problem is, in Matthew's time, everyone was expecting this Messiah to be this king like David, this powerful figure to come and dominate, and their oppressors right now are the Roman uh, citizens, the Roman <coughs> people, and, and they're thinking that, man, this, this, king, this new king's going to come and, and bring in this new uh, power. We're going to take over, but yeah, he doesn't come like that, but he comes from the line of David that fulfills Scripture. As a matter of fact, John MacArthur quotes, and he says this, he says, Jesus was the blood descendant through Mary and the legal descendant of David through Joseph. In other words, the importance of this right here, him being descendant of David, his like my great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandpa was King David, was that ultimately Joseph is the one where the birthright of Jesus comes through. It always came through the father. That's where his birthright to this heir of the throne was going to come from. But it was through Mary, because Joseph was, again, not his biological father, that the bloodline came through. So to remove any doubt of, is he a rightful heir to his throne? He, he is. It's through this. It's interesting because Joseph's kind of a nobody. We'll look at it here in a little bit. And yet he has kingly roots that go way back. Another question about this is, well, how old was Joseph at this time? How old was he at this time? Most likely, I'd say he's probably young. There's debate over his age, over how exactly old he was. Matter of fact, they have the book called the Apocrypha, which is uh, some call the uh, uh, they false writings. They're not sure. They, they think they're authoritative. Uh, they're scriptures. There are other scriptures that were written uh, that were written about 150 years after the death of Christ that, that people say they're not entirely sure about its authenticity or its authorship, and so they were never brought and put into scripture. But they have these other writings. And in these other writings, which other uh, people like the Catholics actually adopt these in, uh, believe that Joseph was an older widower. They believe he was much older in age. As a matter of fact, they think that he had six kids. All his kids we read about <coughs> were from his previous marriage. And his wife passed away. He married Mary more out of just to care for her and love her, but he had no relations with her at all. And they never uh, see, uh, uh, fulfilled their marriage vows or anything in that. Uh, ultimately, is this idea that Mary was this divine figure, and they try to hold on to that and say, well, that's what it is, and they believe Joseph is older. As a matter of fact, one quote I found said this, that sometime around the 6th century, a document called the History of Joseph the Carpenter was compiled. In the jo document, Joseph was said to be 90 years old when his first wife died, leaving him six children, which means if that were true, uh, they believe, based off those writings, that Joseph was probably about 93 years old. 
Now, the thing is, there's nowhere in Scripture that points to that, and these are writings that most scholars would say they don't really hold to her value because this is not the documents the early churches hold, so they don't say they're authoritative. And so what we have to go by is just based on culture alone. Some of you may not know this, but in culture alone, Mary at this time was probably approximately 13 to 14 years old whenever she had Jesus. Can you imagine that? Think about that for a second. A 13- or 14-year-old kid given the responsibility to carry the Messiah and to do all this. I mean, that is just baffling to me. I did student ministry for 15 years, no disrespect. That's just amazing to me. Okay, I'm just going to say that. 13, like, I'm just saying even for myself, a 13- or 14-year-old kid, given this responsibility. But if you go by customs alone, by of this time and what's going on, and the fact of the timeliness of when he's marrying her, Joseph most likely was approximately 14 to 17 years old himself. Think about that for a second. The, the leader of the household, this man who is now given responsibility, 14 to 17 years old, and the task that's put before him. He has this wife he's excited to marry, and suddenly she's pregnant, and it's not his kid. What's going through his mind as a 14 to 17-year-old kid? He's suddenly tasked with taking his new family and protecting them and taking them to, to the census, was going to take them to Egypt and flees. What, what's going through his mind? We, we can only imagine. As a matter of fact, one quote I found says this, says, boys were required during this time to have apprenticed under their fathers and to be able to support themselves and a family before they were married. In other words, before they would even be able to marry, they had to apprentice, be able to be good enough in their trade to provide their family before they could even get married, which most of these boys would be 14 to 17 years old at this time. Can you imagine? He's just starting out. He's just starting out his trade. He's just starting out his ability to provide, and he's, he's starting his new business. He's trying to get it going, and suddenly he has this. Like, what, what do I do with this? Can, can you imagine what's going through his mind, his heart? He, he's a young guy. And he's trying to process something that, honestly, what, think about this. When you were 14, 17 year old, can you imagine being given a staff? Some of you guys are 14, 17 year olds. Can you imagine? God comes right now, listen, I know this isn't your son, but, but I want you to father this child. I want you to raise him as you want. I want you to care for him. Can you imagine that? I just can't even process. I can't imagine having a kid that young, but having to deal with all this going on. So we learn so much about him. We learn that he's lying today. We learn that he's so young, but even more so, which is kind of today we're talking about, is he's a carpenter. If you turn to Matthew chapter 13, verse 55, we learn that about his occupation. And it's mentioned several times in Scripture, and it's the only things really kind of mentioned to about him. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 55, it's actually used as a knock to, to, to kind of bring down Jesus and act like he's nothing because he's, he's just a carpenter. Look what it says. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 55, right before he goes to his hometown and he's, he's preaching all these things that just people can tell are not of someone from his stature. And they begin to make fun of him and said, where did this man, being Jesus, get this wisdom and, and these miraculous powers? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Like seriously, that, 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 that's a dude that just, like his dad's the carpenter, so he's like, he has no bearing to do this. Isn't this Mary's, uh, his mother called Mary and his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Like, don't we know? He's, his family, his dad's the one that put those shutters on our house. Do you remember that? You remember that guy. He's the one that built the, the playground out back for our kids, and now he's telling us of all these divine things about God. Can you imagine? Like, what does that tell us about him being a carpenter? It tells us a lot. You see, at first it tells us this. It tells us that Joseph was not the best of the best. 
As a matter of fact, in this time and culture, a disciple, to be a disciple, you have to be raised up in the synagogue. You had to be the best of the best. Kids at a young age would be sent off to the local synagogue to begin learning to memorize Scripture. And those kids, as they kind of broke through those different age levels, did not make it. They'd be sent back home if they were not the best. So around five or six years old, if you're that kid and you're just having trouble, uh, you know, singing the songs up front, or you're having trouble quoting Scripture, you're... Local rabbis say, listen, you're a great kid, but it's time to go home and start learning the family trade. Like, this is not for you. And those kids who would continue on, they continue to strive on and take those best of the best classes, you know, and just, just uh, thrive on in what they can. Those kids would actually come to a point where they can memorize the entire uh, Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, word for word, memorize and quote every bit of it. And those kids that could not quite cut it or did not have what it took to be like the rabbi they might follow someday, they would look at them and say, listen, you're a great kid, but this is not cut out for you. It's time for you to go home and start your family trade. You're, you're not the best of the best. And they keep going all the way up until about 12 or 14 years old, keep going through this weeding out process. And even if you knew everything they knew, even if you uh, like just excelled in all your classes, but yet at the end of the day, the rabbi looked at you and said, listen, I know you've done everything. But yet when I look at you, I don't see someone who could do what I could do. They would look at you and say, it's time to go home and start the family trade. Go go do what your dads do. Go learn the family trade. Joseph here is what? He's a carpenter, which means what? He was not the religious, brightest elite. He was rejected. He was not the religious elite. He was just a guy that was now time to go and start learning the family trade because he did not measure up to those expectations. Not just that, we know he's a carpenter. The, the Greek word for carpenter is the word tekton. It's carpenter, and they would work with wood or stone or, or metal, and, and that's what they did for them. They'd build stuff. They'd build furniture, farm tools, and yoke. Now, actually, what's interesting to me is my, my stepdad, the man who raised me, he's a carpenter. I know a little bit about carpentry, but kind of vicariously through him. Can I tell you, carpenters are tough guys. They're a little crazy, too. Yeah, you know one, don't you? They're a little crazy, too. I can't tell you how many times I've worked with him. He's done stuff. I'm like, this is insane. Why are we doing this right here? How many times he smashed his fingers and just, like, just popped them like grapes, and he's like, well, tape it up, let's get back to work. I'm like, no, we're done. Like, stop for the day. I'll never forget being in Juarez on a mission trip, and we're working on a house, and these two kids are working on the house. They're kids are called Jays. Let me preface that real quick. And, and one's on the bottom shooting this nail gun as he's nailing up It's The other one's holding it down. Do you see where this is going? Yeah, you know where it's going. The kid shot a nail up, went through his hand, and he's screaming, get it out, get it out, get it out. Now, me and my dad are in the other room working on this house. Everyone gets up and runs to see what's going on, and my dad just keeps working. And I'm like, hey, do we need to go see what's going on? He's like, I don't know. There's nothing we can do. And he just keeps working like this is just a normal day. And so the guy, the kid, had to go get a hammer, pry the nail out. The guy's screaming and stuff like that. Finally, an hour later, after everything has settled down, the dust has settled, my dad goes in there, and he walks in. This is the only thing he says to him. He goes, he goes meat or bone? Which, if you don't know what that means, he's asking, where did it hit? Did it hit the bone in the hand or hit the meat? And the kid goes, meat. He goes, ah, you'll be good. I'll see you out here in an hour. Like, you're not done. I know you shot a nail through your hand, but it's time to come back and work. They're a little crazy. They're tough. They're tough. Think about this as you think about Joseph, like what he saw, how many times he smashed his fingers working on stuff, how many times he's cut his hand as he's sawing pieces together. How many times he's just broke his back working hard at all this sort of stuff. It was a hard living, a hard profession. And he was a tecton, 
which means carpenter. And you say, why is that important? Because there were two different words for carpenter. One was tecton, the other one was architecton. See, tecton was just a carpenter. All they did was they, they, they built stuff. They, you, you were the, the laborer, if you will. And architecton was the master carpenter and the master craftsman. The master craftsman is kind of like a foreman. The master craftsmen had others that worked for them underneath them. It says the word it uses for carpenter for Joseph is not an architecton. He's just, he's just a tecton. You know what I'm saying here. He's not even the best of the best of his own craft. He's not moved it up to be an architecton, to be a master craftsman. He's just, he's just a carpenter that, that builds stuff out, that, that, the, the stuff that no one cares about, maybe. He's a nobody. Why am I telling you this stuff? Because I think to appreciate Joseph, you have to understand a little bit about Joseph. Joseph, can I tell you real quick, listen, Joseph's a nobody. Joseph's forgettable. Like literally, I mean, he's, he's practically forgettable. Like when you read the gospel, Mark doesn't even mention him in the book of Mark. Not, not even brought up, never even brought up. Joseph is never mentioned in the book of Mark. As a matter of fact, only in Matthew, Luke, and John is Joseph even mentioned. John barely even referenced him just as the carpenter in that disc that they, they're making fun of him. No other book in the Bible, no other New Testament book even mentions the guy. In the Bible alone right here, his name is only brought up 16 times in Scripture. That's the only, that's the only time you can read. I'll be glad to sit down and show you every reference. You find it right there real quick in Matthew in the beginning of Luke pretty much. He's a nobody. He's, he's forgettable. He's just, he's literally like, what was that guy's name? That carpenter, you know, the, the, one, that, the one that built that thing for our, our grandpa. What's his name? Jimmy? Johnny? No, Joseph, that's it. Yeah, 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 that guy. He's nobody. I, I ask you this because it raises a question. It tells us something about God. It tells us something about ourselves too. Now listen, why Joseph? Why Joseph. Like, listen, God, if there's something I know about God and reading about Scripture, God doesn't do anything haphazardly. God doesn't just whim stuff together and say, ah, they'll sort it out. God has divinely orchestrated every little thing. He chose Mary. He chose Joseph. Why Joseph? Like, why did he not choose a rabbi or a priest, someone who could raise him in the faith, someone that knows something about Scripture, someone who was the best and can quote Scripture and teach Jesus everything? Would that not be extremely valuable? I know he was 100% God, but don't forget he was 100% man too. Like, why not put him in the best of the best situation? Why did he not put him in the household of an educated scribe, lawyer, or Pharisee? Someone who knew the inside and out of Scripture, the one who people respected and revered. So when they said, that's Jesus, that's, that's Joseph's son. Like his dad, you know that Pharisee? Which I know now is a different thing for us. Back then that was a reverent thing. And I was like, man, Pharisee is something to be behold of. Do you know who that, that's Joseph. That's, that's, that's Jesus, Joseph's son. Well, why not that household? Why not a politician? Why not a wealthy businessman that could actually support his ministry efforts? Why not, why not even an architect, Tom? Why not even in the field Joseph is in, the best of the best, or even a little bit cream of the crop? He's just a tecton. Like, what, what does God choosing Joseph tell us about God? More, more so, let me say this. What does God choosing Joseph tell us about us? What is he saying about us? 
I, I go back to my big idea statement that hit home is this. Listen, God entrusts the ordinary with the extraordinary. God chooses forgettable nobodies and puts them responsible of his most valued commodities. The greatest thing in the kingdom of God is given to those people you'd like, really that guy? Go, go read about the story of David. Where was David when they came to look at him and anoint him as king? His dad didn't even bring him out. Like, here's all my sons. Check them out. This is my oldest. Nope. What about this one? This one's kind of got, you know, lazy eye. And okay, let's keep going down. Like, he, he goes through all his sons. <coughs> and his, the, the guy's like, is there really no one else? He's like, well, I got, like, David. But come on now. Guys, please don't. He's a run the family. He's out watching sheep right now because, we, you know, the dog was sick or something. I couldn't do it. He's like, no, bring him in. And he looks like, that's the guy right there. He's like, you look at the way man looks at stuff, but you don't see as how God does at the heart of man. God looks at things completely different. God chooses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. And can I tell you something? I believe when I read in Scripture, even though his name's not mentioned much, I can't help but see Joseph's fingerprints all over Jesus' life. I have a list of scripture I'm going to read to you just to point out some things. Think about this. In Matthew chapter 21, verse 42, it, Jesus says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is just what the Lord has done and is wonderful in our eyes. When Jesus talks about this, is he having flashbacks to when he was a kid and him and his dad, Joseph, were building a house. And his dad's saying, hey, now listen, Jesus, whenever you build a house, it's important you find the best one. You find a cornerstone. It's the one, it's a foundation in which the house is built. You want to find the flyest, most perfect one, because once you set that in place, the rest of the house is built around it. Does Jesus have flashbacks to that? Does he think about what his dad Joseph had taught him, his carpentry skills, and what's going on? In Luke chapter 14, 28, Jesus says this, For which of you, wanting to build a tower, doesn't first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, after he's laid the foundation and cannot finish it, all the onlookers will begin to ridicule him, saying, this man started to build and wasn't able to finish. I can only imagine a situation Joseph had where Jesus was like, yeah, I remember when my dad started building a house. Man, he way miscalculated what was going on there. Like, that was, that was a scar in our family for a long time. Like, people always went by that house and said, man, Joseph, you really messed up there. You didn't think about that, did you? What was Jesus thinking about when he's thinking of these parables as he's telling stories to people? In Matthew chapter 11, verse 29 through 30, he says, listen, take up my yoke and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart and you will find rest in your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. We know Tecton used to make yokes. When he was crafting together, it's just like, dad, like, Jesus is saying, dad, what is this? He begins to explain what a yoke is and how valuable it is to, to good farming techniques. We see Luke chapter 6, verse 46 to 49 says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do the things I say? He says, I will show you what someone, uh, what someone is like who comes to me. He hears my words and acts on them. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. When the flood came, the river crashed against the house and could not shake it because it, is well, it was well built. But the one who hears and does not act is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The river crashed against it and immediately it collapsed and the destruction of the house was great. But was Joseph good at building good houses? And he taught his son, listen, you've got to have a firm foundation. And, and this is a visual thing that's going to do good for the rest of your life if you get this, Jesus. This firm foundation right here, this is, this is what our faith in God should be like. 
Is this stuff that he's... We don't know. I understand we're reading into it. But let's take stuff we can say that we do know. Look at Luke chapter 15, verse 20, the story of the prodigal son. The son leaves, and he says, listen, I'm done with you. I'm done with you, Father. I don't want anything. And when he comes to his senses and comes back home, he comes back begging for his father in mercy. In verse 20, we pick up, it says, so he, being a son, got up, or sorry, the son went up, got up and went to his father. But while his son was still a long ways off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and threw his arms around his neck and began to kiss him. Who, who do you think the earthly father was that Jesus was envisioning as he's telling that story? Hey, when I, when I think about the kingdom of heaven, I think it's about a prodigal son who ran away and who rejected everything. And yet when the father saw him a long ways off, and when he's telling the story, he's envisioning mine, he's seeing his dad, Joseph, run after him. His earthly father has a huge factor on that. As a matter of fact, Luke chapter 11, verse 11 through 13 says, What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If then you who are evil know how to good give gifts to your children, how much more likely will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Would he have told that story, would he have told that account if Joseph was cruel and did not care for his family and sacrificed for him? What is he envisioning? But my favorite is this one right here in Mark chapter 1, verse 16 through 20, when Jesus chooses his disciples. And he walks along the sea, and he's beginning to say, who am I going to start my ministry? And he comes across these guys who are fishing. Why are they fishing? Because they're not the best of the best. They did not make the cut. And they're starting their family trade. And look what he says. He says, as he passed alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, Simon's brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said, Hey, follow me, and I will make you fish for people. Come be my disciple, because I see something in you. When he called these men, did he see his own father, that people for years would say is nothing, is worthless, had no reputation, said, listen, listen, in God's kingdom, you are worth something. In God's kingdom, you have value, you have something to bring to the table. Don't write yourself off. Listen, can I tell you something? Listen, God entrusts to us ordinary people who say, I can never, whatever, whatever it is, and gives you extraordinary things to do. And we doubt ourselves. Fathers, can I say something real quick? Listen, you don't understand how important your influence is to your kids. When they think about their Heavenly Father, the, the legacy, the life you live makes an impact on how they envision their Heavenly Father in Heaven. If you've been good and you've been loving, let me tell you something, suddenly when they talk about their Father in Heaven, that's a good memory, not a bad one. And for some of you, listen, I'm going to be honest, I understand you didn't get that privilege. And I, I apologize for that, and that hurts, and that's it's hard. But we have a high calling to embody what this heavenly father looks like as we live here on earth. And so my question to you is this. What extraordinary responsibility have you been given? In your life, in your influence, in your circle of people, friendships, kids, job responsibility, calling in ministry, what extraordinary things has God given you? Can I just say something real quick? Listen, don't disqualify what God has qualified. Don't come and say, listen, I'm not, I can't, I'm just, I'm not when God says you are. Don't miss that. Listen, God has made you, God has taken things that the world has rejected and made it pivotal in his kingdom. Don't ever say, I can't, because there's a difference between I can and I won't. What God says you can, the only excuse is I won't. And so it's not that you can't. If we read Joseph's account, we look at his example, can I tell you what we see? We see an ordinary person chosen by God to do something extraordinary. In your circle of influence, in your life, where you work, where you live, the children you have, I, I'm not as good as, you don't have to be as good. God has given you that circle of influence for a reason. 
what extraordinary thing are you going to do with it? God has given you everything you need. And so my question is this. How are you shaping your children right now? Or, or not as even your children. If you don't have kids, those relationships entrusted to you. What image of God are you painting for them? When they talk about a good father, when they talk about love, do, do they look at you and it's like, man, I hope, I hope God's just a small symbol. I hope God's like that. Because if that's what God's like, I want more of that. What lessons will they continue to carry on? Here's one. Where do you need to start saying, I will, over I won't? Can I say something? With God, there is no I can't. God has gifted you. I think in my own life, and again, I'm not trying to glorify stepdads. I'm just trying to think from my own perspective. The influence my dad has had on me. I remember when I was in student ministry, first starting out, and we went to, took a group of students to uh, YEC at Chesapeake Energy Arena. And we took a 15-passenger van. I'm 19 years old with a group of students. Me and my then-girlfriend, Emily, we're, we're taking these students there. It's about midnight at night, and we get in the van to leave. And I remember going to leave, and the van won't start. I have about 12 kids in the car. I'm a 19-year-old kid. I'm freaking out. It's cold outside. It's late. Parents are expecting their kids. What do I do? What do I do? First thing I do is I pick up my phone and call Dad. Listen, I can't get the car started. He was there in 10 minutes. It's a 20-minute drive, in case you're wondering. <laughs> he was there. He came and got us a car. Emily took the kids home in a different car we were able to get. He stayed with me out there until 2 o'clock in the morning making sure we get this car running. You know what it taught me in that when I think of that? When I am hurting, when I'm in deep times and I think, God, where are you? I can say, you know what? My, my earthly father did a good job of showing what a heavenly father is like. I know he's there. I know he cares. And so what, what, what are you going to do? What message, example, are you going to live out? What, what are you going to do? Don't, don't squander this extreme gift. Maybe your life is meant to be forgettable. It's okay. No one talks about Joseph. But you have responsibility if they're extraordinary. Do something with it. Raise it up, value it, trust it. Take what God has given you and run with it. Can I pray for you? As we just think about how we can live that same kind of life and what God says about us. Father God, you are so good. I thank you for shaping us. I thank you for loving us. I thank you for caring for us. I thank you for taking earthly people to, to, to show what our heavenly God is really like. And God, I know some people in this room don't have good examples. And God, I, I pray you redeem that in some way, shape, or form in their life. I pray they'd come to find out how good you are. And I pray they would take the responsibility that maybe wasn't uh, done well with them and they'd run with it to fathers or stepdads or adoptive fathers or just very influential people who love other people. God, I pray we take it seriously. God, to, to moms, to, to grandmas, to, to students, God, God, I pray we'd ask, what, what do you want us to do? God, let us run this race with endurance, with passion, and just say, God, I, I'm, I'm going to be faithful. Even though I, I feel completely inadequate, even though I feel like I, there's nothing I could do, there's nothing I bring to the table, I'm just a tecton. God, you've entrusted us with much. And so let us be faithful. God, I pray over the series as we just study about Joseph, as we learn about Joseph, I pray to begin to see ourselves in the story and begin to see you in a better light. God, most of all, I pray for the that sound of my voice who has never experienced this kind of loving father that I'm talking about. And God, our earthly fathers I know are just a, a, a shadow of who you are. God, I pray they come put their faith in you. God, I know for a fact there's people in the sound of my voice who have never put their trust and faith and salvation in you. 
And they need to submit that today. And they need to come say, God, I, I, I want you. It's not by their good works. It's not by their good deeds. It's not by their church attendance. It's not by uh, who they're associated with. God, it's a decision they have to make. They have to want to be adopted into your sonship and daughtership. So God, I pray they come talk to me. I pray they come talk to one of the elders, talk to Matt, talk to someone they trust and say, listen, I want that. So I pray they come find me and we can talk. I praise you for being a holy and faithful God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.